So in the last few weeks, I've been doing something that occasionally happens to us and binge watching a series of related shows on Netflix. Cooking competition shows, starting in early June with um, uh, Barbecue Showdown, in which the greatest amateur barbecue cooks in America compete to see who's the best, two seasons of that. Then the final table, in which professional chefs from around the world compete to join the final table of the nine talented chefs who have been their judges. And then, uh, most recently, I've started on this uh, one I don't even remember the name of, but it's British families cooking against each other. Very cute. You have a grandparent and two teenagers, or three cousins, whatever, and they face off. Um, I don't know why I love this so much. Murray said to me the other day, what are you watching, Daddy? Oh, just another show about cooking things you'll never cook? <laughs> um, maybe it's just my way of, of escaping the reality of having two picky eaters in my household. But there's something else that I've noticed in these cooking shows. It's that no matter who they are, whether it's a 16-year-old girl who's cooking with her grandmother, or a professional chef with two Michelin stars, every single character at some point during the kind of B-roll biographical stuff they put in to make it good TV, every single character talks at some point about a mentor, about somebody who inspired them to be the cook or the chef they are. For one, it's the father and the grandfather who were both chefs and who started the family restaurant that's now passed down to him. For another, it's his single mom in a blue-collar town he grew up in who transmogrified the cheapest ingredients night after night into a homey meal that made him feel her love. For another, it's the renowned chef who took a young kid under his wing, showing her the ropes and supporting her when nobody else would, helping her get started on her career. Each one of these chefs, or cooks, had been given the gift of love by someone who made them into the person they are today. And each one, at some point, no matter how prestigious they were and what competitions they'd won or lost, each one reveals that they're still trying to live up to the gift of that love. I say all of this by way of introduction to a gospel passage that you probably noticed is short and sweet and simple. If all you had were Jesus' words to the disciples today, you might think that Christianity is the easiest religion in the world. And in a sense, you'd be right. Maybe a little context is helpful for what Jesus says. The early church was full of traveling apostles and prophets and preachers who'd go from town to town and church to church spreading the good news, just like Canon O'Connell came and visited us last week. Jesus and the early Christians taught that there were spiritual rewards for welcoming these wanderers with kindness. Welcome a prophet in the name of a prophet, receive a prophet's reward. Welcome a righteous person in the name of a righteous person, receive a righteous person's reward. Jesus lived in a culture in which hospitality was a household obligation, not an industry. So a traveling bishop or a prophet wouldn't go and stay at the Days Inn. They'd stay in someone's home. And it's expensive to feed another person and hard work to host them, as you all know. And so Jesus offers a reward to those who receive and welcome his prominent disciples as they go about their work of spreading the good news. And that makes perfect sense. But then Jesus goes on. Whoever gives even a cup of cold water, he says, even to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, 
Truly, I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. There's some debate among biblical scholars about what exactly little ones mean, because there's some debate about biblical scholars about everything. Maybe it's literally little children who are the little ones. Maybe Jesus just means ordinary folks, the rest of the disciples, not the prophets or the righteous. But in either case, it's a deliberate contrast to these great and good and important people, the prophets, the righteous, the traveling apostles. It's not about hosting an elaborate stay for an archbishop when he comes that matters. Even welcoming the little ones counts, Jesus says. And as St. Jerome noted, it's not a, a bowl of soup or a cup of coffee. It doesn't cost you anything in fuel to warm it up or ingredients to mix it together. A simple cup of cold water is all that's needed, something anyone can give. And yet this simple, unpretentious act is enough. Whoever does even only this in the name of a disciple will never lose their reward. So congratulations to all those who have ever served on the coffee hour rota. Even if you have no idea how to turn on that baffling coffee machine, even if you just put out lemonade and iced tea or a pitcher of water, you have been saved. You have offered a cup of cold water to dozens of these little ones, big and small, in the name of the disciple St. John, and you will not lose your reward. Hallelujah. I think I've probably said it before, but if what you're interested in is eternal salvation, Christianity is almost literally the easiest religion in the world. In today's gospel, Jesus gives us one thing to do and promises that that's enough. And it's such a small and a concrete task. Once in your life, offer one cup of cold water to one unimportant person in the name of God, and you will not lose your reward. It's such a simple and a concrete task that it's almost Jesus' storytelling way of expressing the same truth that Paul does in his very Pauline way. Christianity, properly understood, is not a list of rules to follow or difficult work to be done. It's the story of what Paul calls the free gift of God, which is eternal life. God's love is free, and it's a gift, and we don't have to do anything at all to earn it in order to receive it. Well, okay, maybe give one person a cup of water. Do you think you can handle that much? And so we've received this incredible gift of love, and we're left wondering how to live up to it. This is the tension within which Paul lives in his letter to the Romans and most of the rest of what he writes. This is why Jesus, despite offering this simple truth about the ease of salvation, gives so many moral and ethical teachings. What then, Paul asks rhetorically in his letter to the Romans today, should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Should we take this incredible free gift from God, which offers us an eternal reward in exchange for a cup of cold water? and throw it in God's face? Should we take God's unconditional love and use it as an excuse to treat one another like garbage and pursue our own gain because God will love us no matter what? Should we take the freedom we've been given and freely choose the way of violence and death? By no means, Paul pleads. God loves you unconditionally. That doesn't mean you should act like a total jerk. 
Throughout his letters, Paul's constantly trying to juggle these two things. How to convince the early churches, on the one hand, of the amazing beauty of God's grace and mercy, God's unconditional, self-sacrificing love, and how to stop them, on the other hand, from acting in ways that have shown that they've gone completely off the rails. He's constantly writing things like, and I hear that there's one among you who has married his own stepmother? (laughs) Question mark? We modern Christians find ourselves in different versions of the same situation that they were thousands of years ago. We have, you have, been given the gift of life and love and hope. Maybe by somebody very concrete in your own life, maybe by God in the fullness of your whole life. You've been given a legacy and a model for the person whom you could be. Maybe by your own mentor, or maybe by a big mentor with a capital M in whose name we gather. But either way, you've been given a gift, and it can't be taken away, no matter what you do. You've also been given a choice. What will you do with that gift? What will you do with that legacy? Will you, who have been trained and loved by generations of chefs, turn around and treat your sous-chefs like they belong in the compost with the onion skins? Will you who've been handed a love of home cooking sell mom's apple pie recipe to McDonald's and cash out? Will you who've been loved beyond measure and forgiven beyond reason by God hold resentments and grudges and judgments against the people in your life? It's up to you. You have the freedom to do either of those things. You have the choice. You've been given the gift and you will receive the reward. You don't have to do anything to earn God's love and forgiveness and grace, anything at all. But it turns out it's probably the work of a lifetime to try to live up to it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.